Well, good morning, church. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. A voice. And it's always been precious to me. That line, that first line, he not only breaks the power of sin, but he breaks the power of canceled sin, frees us from the slavery of sin, and forgives all sins, past, present, and future. Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you'd open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, you could have predicted that. Oh, yes. No, yeah, kids are dismissed. Thank you. Kids are dismissed. We planned all this out, I promise you. Thank you. As they're going, pray for them, pray for the workers, pray for the word of God to be proclaimed to the little ones. On Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, we are on this uh, marathon series through the letter to Titus. Starting in verse 5, Paul says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And what kind of elder, what what is an elder to be? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers or faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. O Lord, your word is more precious than gold, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And Lord, I ask that we would be a people who treasure your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. I ask, O Lord, that we would rejoice in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I ask, O Lord, that our souls would be crushed with longing for your ordinances at all times. I'm asking, O Lord, that you would establish our footsteps in your word and you would not let any iniquity have dominion over us. I'm asking that we would love your law and it would be our meditation all of the day. O Lord, we put all of our eggs in the basket of the power of your word, not in a man, not in many men, not in people, O Lord, all in the instrument of your word to do what you alone, what we could never do. O Lord, I'm asking for this church that you would bring about awakening, O Lord, awakening to your glory and to your beauty. I'm asking, O Lord, for spiritual renewal for this church, renewal in in our passion for the Great Commission, And I'm asking, O Lord, for transformation, transformation through proclamation that will result in exaltation, that you would transform us by the power of your word as we not only hear it preached up front from Sunday mornings, O Lord, but as we speak it into the lives of one another. I pray for this sweet, precious body, O Lord, these souls whose names have been inscribed in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, Lord, I pray that their eyes would be open to see that they have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I pray that they would see that they have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that they have been predestined in love to adoption as children, that in Christ they have redemption and forgiveness of sins because of the grace which you lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, O Lord. I pray that what we have in Christ, that that would be reality for us. O Lord, and we know that when we grapple with that, Lord, then we can overcome sin and temptation. I pray for those who are struggling even today, who feel almost as if they were the chief of sinners today. 
I pray that you would comfort them and you would encourage them, give them such hope and consolation in Christ. Oh Lord, certainly there is some level of discouragement in this room, individual people discouraged at things in their lives. I pray that you would give them great encouragement, give them eyes to see your supremacy that governs all things and they would place their hope in you, not in circumstances. Oh Lord, we pray for families, not just dads, but especially dads, oh Lord, that you would make healthy families in this church, dads who love their wives and lead their families. Wives, O oh Lord, who, who, um, who love their kids and love their husbands and, and, that, and that roles, the roles that you have given men and women would be eagerly embraced. And Lord, we long to be a church. However small we may be, however unworthy we may be, Lord, we long to be a church used by you to advance the Great Commission. O oh Lord, who is adequate for these things, not us. So we look to you. Even now in this moment, Lord, pray that you would use your word to work in such a way that you alone would get the glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I know that you know and love the promise that Christ will build his church. But you see, the funny thing about Christ building his church is that oftentimes he uses very mundane and unspectacular things to do so. I don't know if you've thought about that, but it's really true. Christ uses things that are kind of ordinary and not super impressive. Now, I'm like you. I want the fireworks show. I want Book of Acts kinds of miracles. I want people raised from the dead. I want the miraculous ability to speak in foreign languages without ever, ever having studied them. I want thousands of conversions at once. I want all those things too. But what we have to come to grips with is that Christ never, ever promised that would be the normal way he would build his church because the normal way he builds his church, the means through which he builds his church are just things that don't seem on the surface at least to be very exciting or exceptional. And yet they are the very things that work. Like what, for instance? Well, preaching for starters, prayer, scripture meditation, discipleship, loving one another, fellowship, practicing the one another's hospitality, evangelism, church discipline, biblical counseling, speaking the truth to one another in love. Do you see, these these are really unremarkable things on the surface that you would never assume could build a church, and yet they are the very things that do. It's just not at all how we would do things if we were in charge. And it is good for the whole universe that we are not in charge. And speaking of things that Christ uses to advance his plan, that brings us maybe to the most unsophisticated of all. You know what it is? One of the most unsophisticated means that Christ uses to build his church, here it is, are elders, pastors, Shepherds in the trenches who labor in the grime of life to help you be godly and to fight sin and do whatever it is that you got to do to live a life that puts Christ on display. That is an elder and that is one of the means that Christ uses to build his church. And, And although they are highly imperfect and only human and make tons of mistakes, they are nevertheless, nevertheless, the first thing on the list you need for a healthy church. And we know they're the first thing on the list that you need for a healthy church because that's exactly what Paul tells Titus in his letter. And and the funny thing about Titus is that what it is, why it's in your Bibles is because what it is, is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, if you want this church to be everything you've ever imagined it could be, I just want you to know that's not out of the realm of possibility. Everything you've ever dreamed this church could be in your wildest imagination, I just want you to know you can have that. It is yours for the taking, Christ community. But what you need at minimum 
are the essential components found in the letter to Titus first. And although Paul's got loads of things he says you need to have a healthy church, the first thing on the list he says that you need to be a healthy church are leaders, and Paul calls them elders. And to be an elder, you have to be qualified. And in chapter 1, Paul gives Titus 15 qualifications divided up into three categories in which an elder, in which you need to be an elder. And, and this morning we get to the third and final category in which elders need to be blameless. Namely, elders are blameless because of the virtues they pursue with passion. Elders are blameless because of the virtues they pursue with passion. Let's put it this way. To be an elder you must not only be among the godliest men in the church, you must be among the godliest men on the face of the planet. <laughs> and I know that sounds overdramatic, not that I'm prone to that, but, but if you think about it, it's really true. Because you could be qualified to lead a team, you could be qualified to lead an organization. You could be qualified to lead a company. You could be qualified even to lead the whole stinking country and yet not be qualified to lead the local church. And what that tells us is that the local church is the most priceless entity on the face of the planet. The stakes are just so high. And yet you should know, you should know that the greatest mistake you could ever make this morning would be to assume that because this is an elder-only text here, that it has elder-only implications and elder-only relevance, which isn't true at all. In fact, the text that we're looking at this morning has, has shocking, haunting relevance for every single one of your lives. Do you know why? Because everything that Paul commands elders to be and to do is exactly what he commands everyone in the church to be and to do. Let's put it this way. Elders do what they do, not so that you don't have to, but so that you will know how to, because as go the shepherds, so go the sheep. So here we go, our last sermon in Titus on elders. No cheers, please. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see seven virtues. And because I like adjectives and hyphenated adjectives at that, I want you to see seven Christ-exalting virtues. Seven Christ-exalting virtues that elders must pursue with passion. Seven Christ-exalting virtues that elders and everybody else must pursue with passion if a church is going to be a church that changes the world. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want to see. So seven Christ-exalting virtues that an elder and everybody else must pursue. Ready or not, here we go, number one. The first Christ-exalting virtue that an elder must pursue, number one, an elder must be hospitable. An elder must be hospitable, which seems surprising, doesn't it? That hospitality would be on the list. Because back in verse six, Paul said that if a man wants to be an elder, he's got to be blameless, right? And to be blameless means that he has a radically transformed life of exemplary character and holiness. And again, he, he's got to be not only one of the godliest men in the church, he's got to be one of the godliest men on the face of the planet. And yet part of what his holiness is, is the virtue of hospitality. I mean, that just seems surprising, doesn't it? That hospitality would make the cut and be on the list. Like for reals? Meaning what? Meaning that he's got to put on an apron and bake cookies and entertain guests? Well, I think cookies should always be part of the deal. <laughs> but that's not exactly what Paul's got in mind. And if you think about it, hospitality, it's not surprising at all that this would be on the list. Because notice the very last qualification in verse 7. Look what he says. He says that an elder must not be greedy for shameful gain. But then notice in verse 8, instead of that, in fact, the exact opposite of that is to be hospitable. 
You see, it's almost as if he pits greed and hospitality against one another as if they were opposite, because guess what? That is exactly what they are. You see, in kingdom with economics, if you are greedy and stingy with money, I guarantee that you're not very hospitable. And yet this raises the question, doesn't it? What is hospitality? What does it mean to be hospitable? And why is this even on the list? Well, it's on the list because, get this, without it, the Great Commission doesn't happen. Or at the very least, it doesn't happen nearly as effectively as it could. You see, the mission of the church, in a very real sense, advances through flesh and bone interactions and warm meals and cups of coffee and soft couches and inviting people into your home and investing in them and pouring into them the word of God. And as you probably know, the word, the Greek word for hospitality literally means love of strangers or friend of strangers. And the idea, get this, communicates uh, it communicates a, a warm-hearted, selfless generosity and a beautiful self-forgetfulness that is willingly inconvenienced for the good of other people, including especially newcomers and people that you've never seen before in your life. Because it's easy. It's easy to love and hang out with people that you've known forever and to consider yourself to be a hospitable person. But it is a whole other ballgame to extend love to someone that you have never met and never seen before ever in your life. That is hard. That is challenging. That is difficult. That is uncomfortable. And yet that raises the question, doesn't it? What does it say about an elder or any Christian, or an entire church, if they are not hospitable? What does that say about a people if they're not hospitable? Because we've all been to clicky church, haven't we? We've all been ungreeted and ignored. We've all been to the cold, unfriendly church where they had zero interest in getting to know who you are. They had zero interest in helping you thrive in Christ. And we are never going back to that church. We're never going back there again. And so what does it say about a church if they are inhospitable? And just to guard us from self-righteousness, let's just be honest here. We have all been clicky people, haven't we? And we have all been clicky church at one time in our lives. So what does that say about us? Well, not to over-dramatize it, but what it does say when we are inhospitable says something very chilling about our souls. You see, to be inhospitable means that whatever it is that we know And whatever it is that we profess to believe about what God has done in Christ for sinners, whatever we believe about that, if we are inhospitable, it means that it has not truly infiltrated into our affections and it has not truly penetrated into our very souls. In other words, if we are an inhospitable people, it indicates that we don't get grace. You see, to be an unfriendly church or an unfriendly person means that we have not come to grips with what it means to be the recipient of the mercy of Jesus Christ. Because if we had, if we had done that, then we would see that even when we were strangers in the most horrifying sense of the term, even when we were blind, dead, damned, and helpless strangers without any ability to save ourselves from the wrath to come, God, in his mercy, showed hospitality by sending Christ to die for sinners and adopt them as sons and daughters of the living God. Don't you see? The very incarnation and mission of Jesus Christ is the essence of hospitality. And when we get that, and when we love that, we will be the most hospitable people and the most hospitable church on the planet. So hospitality isn't just a warm meal and a comfy couch. It is a warm meal and a comfy couch, but it is rather the grace of Christ in edible and domestic form as we demonstrate the kindness and the generosity of Jesus Christ himself. And so elders, 
future elders and everybody else, how are you doing with hospitality? Do you love strangers? Are you a friend of strangers? See, I, I just, I, and, and the question I really want to ask you is, do you see the profound potential that we have to advance the Great Commission through hospitality? I mean, don't you see that hospitality cracks open the door to get lost people into our homes? That this is literally one of the most strategic platforms for evangelism that exists? Don't you see that hospitality is the gateway to authentic relationships in the church? Hospitality is how we become a battalion of souls, a battalion of comrades fighting together in the trenches for the Great Commission. And so what that means is, if we're not very good at the Great Commission, it means that we're also not very good at hospitality. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be every week. I mean, do ham sandwiches on paper plates for all I care because the goal is less to impress and more to invest in one another. Which brings us to the second Christ-exalting virtue that elders must pursue with passion and everybody else. Number two, an elder must love what is good. An elder must love what is good. Which sounds kind of bland and generic, doesn't it? I mean, to love what is good, what does that even mean? And you can see it in the text. Look what he says. He says that an elder must be hospitable and that an elder must love what is good. Must love what is good. What does that even mean? What is the good that he is supposed to love? What does that even mean? And what does that even look like in real life, in real time, in real life, actual situations? Well, I'll just have you know that this is far from bland and generic. In fact, it is explosively significant. You see, what Paul is talking about here, get this, goes down into the very core of who a man is and what it is that defines him. You see, to love what is good, get this, refers to your internal desires and your passions of what you think is supremely valuable. You see, this is what you love, this is what you prize, this is what you enjoy, this is what you seek for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction. In other words, what Paul is after here is a man with biblically defined priorities and Christ-exalting passions that define who he is. Put it this way, he loves what God loves He hates what God hates. The things that matter most to God are the things that matter most to him. His life is balanced and stable and lived with a profound equilibrium that doesn't get caught up in hobbies and distractions and misplaced priorities. He loves what is good. Which means he loves whatever it is that God has said in his word, what is good. And so if you here at this church, if you love what is good, you will love Christ. You will love his word. You will love the gospel. You will love theology. You will love the church. You will love the great commission. You will love lost people. You will love using your spiritual gifts in the church. Now, to be sure, you can love other things also. You're not a robot. You can love your family. You can love your jobs. You can love to travel. You can love cars. You can love movies. You can love burgers and pizza and golf and baseball and especially the Red Sox and technology and working out and video games and fishing, although that's weird to me. And you can, you can love making things in the garage. Fair game. Love those things too. That's what God made them. What Paul is after is a man who loves all things in proportion, in their proper order, and whose life does not get swept away with misplaced priorities. And it makes total sense, doesn't it, why this is on the list? It makes total sense. Because an elder who doesn't love what is supremely valuable, 
If his own desires and priorities are, are misplaced and misdirected, then his life is not worthy of your imitation and he will not shepherd you in the way you need to go. But on the other hand, if you have an elder who loves what God loves and he hates what God hates, if, he, if his life is defined by whatever God himself has declared in his word it is, is good, then you know that he will be the most beneficial and advantageous person on the planet to you. Do you know why? Because an elder or anyone else, for that matter, who loves what is good will do the most good for others. In other words, an elder who truly loves what is good, he is going to do whatever it takes to help you live a life of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. So elders, future elders and everybody else, do you love what is good? Do you love what is good? Which means I'm asking you, do you have biblically defined priorities and Christ-exalting passions that define who you are? Do your passions and desires reflect what God himself in his word has said what is good? Or has something else in your life got the upper hand? Because let me just say this, if you love what God loves and you hate what God hates and your life is defined by, by Christ-exalting priorities, your life will be maximized for the Great Commission. And I can't think of any life more satisfying or exciting than that. Which brings us to the third Christ-exalting virtue that elders and everybody else must pursue. Number three, an elder must be sober-minded. An elder and everybody else must be sober-minded. Looking at verse 8, look at the text. An elder must be hospitable. That is, he shows the grace of Christ in edible and domestic form. He loves what is good, that he has biblically defined priorities that define who he is. And here it is, number three, he must be sober-minded. Like the opposite of drunk, but in his mind. And your version probably says sensible or self-controlled or temperate, but no matter what you call it, it's a really big deal. And it's a really big deal to Paul because six times in the letter to Titus, he uses this word. And so that means whatever this term means, it is central to what it looks like to be a Christian. And if an elder, or anybody else for that matter, if if they are not sober-minded, if if they are a drunk-minded person, the, the symptoms of that are clear and unmistakable. See, if someone is not a sober-minded person, listen carefully, they are imbalanced, unstable, anxious, fearful, easily angered, mastered by their own cravings and appetites. They are erratic and impulsive and they make really dumb decisions because they don't get any counsel from anybody. They are easily distracted and easily driven to excessive emotional extremes because of their circumstances. That is a drunk-minded person. My question is, do you see any of those kinds of symptoms in your life? Are you balanced? Are you stable? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Are you mastered by your cravings and appetites? Are you easily driven to excessive emotional extremes because of your circumstances? Because here's the thing, what the world, what the secular psychological world, what they call bipolar or addictions or obsessive compulsive behavior or anxiety disorders or panic attacks, did you know that there is a biblical cure for all of those things? Did you know that? There is. And if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what is the cure for those kinds of things? Maybe he would say medication. But medication or not, for sure he would definitely say what you need to be is a sober-minded person. Which raises the question, doesn't it? How the heck do you even be a sober-minded person? 
How do you become stable and and balanced and level-headed and consistent and not anxious and not fearful and not panicking and not, not driven to excessive emotional extremes because of your circumstances? How do you become that kind of person? I'll tell you how. You ready? To become sober-minded, what you need is to be theologically retrofitted by the supremacy of Christ. You need to be theologically retrofitted by the supremacy of Christ, which sounds weird, but here's what I mean. You know that in California, they have lots of earthquakes. And any building, get this, any building before 1978, they're not strong enough to handle the earthquakes. So they have to have people go out there and, and retrofit the building. They have to give it what they call a seismic upgrade, which means they have to go back and they have to modify the exist, existing structure of the building so that it can be strong enough to endure the earthquakes that would destroy them had they not done that. And you see where this is going. In the same way, if you are an emotionally unstable person, it simply means that you need theological retrofitting for your soul. You need a seismic upgrade in your theology. What I mean is you need a bigger view of the supremacy of Christ. In other words, you need to modify the existing structure of your thought life, your messy thought life, and you need to stop trying to find joy in your circumstances and find joy in Christ who is sovereign over your circumstances. Feel the difference? And if you want to get real practical, anytime that you're tempted to feel anxious or fearful or to have a panic attack, or to be depressed, or to be overwhelmed. Anytime you're just tempted to lose your mind, you need to stop right where you are. You need to grab your thought life by the throat, and you need to ask yourself a series of very, very important questions, of which the answer is yes for each one. For instance, when you're in those moments, you need to say, okay, soul, does Christ have all authority in heaven and on earth? Yes. Soul, is Jesus Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Yes. Does Jesus Christ uphold the entire universe by the word of his power, soul? Does he do that? The answer is absolutely he does. Soul is every single moment of my life under the absolute, undisputed dominion of Jesus Christ. Of course it is. And will this moment, will this scenario, will this situation of which the outcome seems so uncertain Is this a gift from his gracious hand? And will it in the end work out for his glory and for my everlasting joy? You know the answer. You know exactly what the answer is. You see, we need to stop interpreting life through our circumstances. And we need to start interpreting life through the lenses of the supremacy of Christ. Because don't you see, to be a sober-minded person is not a Zen, Buddhist, poker-faced indifference to the curveballs of life. Rather, it is the unshakable conviction that Jesus Christ has absolute, undisputed dominion over everything. That's sober-mindedness. Which brings us to the fourth, Christ-exalting virtue that elders and everybody else must pursue. Number four, an elder must be just. An elder must be a just man. Confession time. One of the things about being a pastor (laughs) is that there's, there's always kind of this pressure to cave into power players in the church. You know what a power player is? Power player is usually the one with the loudest voice and the biggest personality, and usually it means they're the ones with the fattest wallet. 
And somehow, somehow they have the, and, and usually they're, they're persuasive and dynamic and influential, and somehow they have the ability to sway entire churches to buy into their ideas or else. <laughs> you know the kind of people I'm talking about? I mean, I heard of a, a story of recently of a, of a multimillionaire attending a small church, a small church looking for its own building. And this millionaire, Daddy Warbucks, offered to pay for the entire thing out of pocket, to, to buy for them their entire building, multi-million dollar facility for free, except for one tiny little string attached, namely, all the church had to do was change its name and name it after him. <laughs> Multi million dollar facility for free. All you got to do is just change the name. No big deal. It's just paperwork. I don't wreak havoc with the pastor's motives. Thankfully, the elders of that church didn't have to think long and hard about that. They said, forget about it. And that dude and his millions left the church never to be seen again. That's, that's the, the, the uh, most uh, egregious example of a power player. And here's the thing about power players. As a pastor, it can be a real temptation to cater to their wishes and to make them happy and, and bend to their agenda and show them partiality and give them preferential treatment. And Paul says, and, and to give them what they want, and Paul says that if an elder does that, does that, he is not qualified to be a pastor. I know that because that's what he says in the text. Look at verse 8. He says an elder must be hospitable. He must love what is good. He must be sober-minded. And here it is. He must be just. He must be a just man. And your version might say upright, and that's true. He must be that too. But the specific object at which Paul is aiming is that an elder must be a just man, which means he is a fair man. He is an impartial man. He is an unbiased man. He's objective. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't make deals behind the scenes. He takes no bribes. He cannot be bought. He doesn't engage in private political maneuvering behind the scenes. And he will never, ever be controlled or manipulated by people's wealth or power or influence or title or position or success. In other words, a just man, get this, is a man who fears God. A just man is someone who trembles before God. See, this is a man who knows that the all-seeing holiness of God peers down into his soul even at this very moment and that one of these days there will be a reckoning. One of these days he's going to stand naked, as it were, before the piercing penetrating vision of Jesus Christ and all of his plots and plans and agendas and motives will be brought to light like cockroaches in the sun. You see, a just man knows that in the end, there are no secrets. So Christ's community, never forget, never forget elders do what they do, not so that you don't have to, but so that you will know how and so the question for you is, are you a just person? Are you unbiased? Are you impartial? Are you a fair person? Is there anything remotely shady or corrupt happening in your life behind the scenes? Are you always looking for a way to bend the rules and cheat the system? Do you let personal feelings or biases or preferences or agendas or fears influence you to compromise biblical standards? What I really want to know is, do you know that there is one closer to you even than your own skin? Did you know that there is one who can see the very secrets of your soul and that one of these days there will be a reckoning? 
Not that you have to be afraid of hell necessarily, but I'm just saying that his opinion should matter to you more than anything and who he is should profoundly shape who you are even in secret. Christ exalting virtue, number five. That elders must pursue and everybody else, number five, an elder must be devout. An elder must be devout. And you know, just as well as I do, that no matter where you live geographically on the map, there are always profound advantages and disadvantages about the culture in which you live. Agreed? And this being what some call the Bible Belt culture has both its cultural advantages and disadvantages. And the advantage of a, of a Bible beltish culture is that lots of people, even if they're not truly Christians, they accept, at, at the very least, a, a cultural form of Christianity. And what that means is that there is, there is little hostility and lots of freedom to talk about the things of Christ, which being from the Pacific Northwest is, is refreshingly liberating. But you should know there is a profound disadvantage to living in a culture like that. And the disadvantage to living in a Bible Beltish culture is that you get all sorts of people who think they're saved and they're not. In America, there are thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of professing Christians who, although they know some right answers and they kind of get the Christian culture and they know how to blend into a congregation, and they've done the altar call, and they've prayed the prayer, and maybe even they've been baptized. Even with all that, there is no life in their soul because they've mistaken cultural Christianity for authentic Christianity. What's my point? My point is, whatever it is that exists in someone's life that makes them truly, authentically a Christian is exactly what Paul includes on the list to elders. Look at verse 8. To be qualified as an elder, a man must be hospitable. He must love what is good. He must be sober-minded. He must be a just man. And here it is. Look at the text. He must be devout. He must be a devout man. And I know your version says holy, but that's not the usual word used for holiness. Rather, the, the, the term literally has the idea, get this, of private internal, sincere passion and adoration. This was the term that was used in the ancient Greek world to speak of someone whose life was so gripped by the Greek gods that it shaped who they were even in secret. In other words, who they were in public was who they were in private. You see, what this term does, understand this, this term cuts through all the externals and the superficial pretensions and veneers and all the impressions about ourselves that we love to give off to people in public. And it takes us all the way down to the very root of what it is that makes someone truly a Christian. And what is it exactly that makes someone truly a Christian? At the end of the day, what is it that truly demonstrates that your faith is real and authentic and that you have salvation and that you are not an imposter? ready? It's not just what you say. It's not even just what you do. It's what you treasure and it's what you prize. Or should I say it's who you treasure and it's who you prize. In other words, the greatest evidence in the world that you have authentic, saving faith is if you find Jesus Christ not merely to be beneficial, but when you find him to be beautiful. You see, authentic, saving faith doesn't merely mean that you intellectually affirm Christ's existence. 
but that you prize him as infinitely glorious and supremely valuable. That is authentic faith. That is what Paul is after. And so what Paul is saying is that if you're going to have a man be an elder, you had better vet him to make sure that he has something deeper than cultural Christianity. Don't mistake niceness for godliness. You see, an elder should have something about his life that just smells like eternity. That, 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 there's, that there's an aura of the transcendent about his life. That it is so, so obvious to everyone who knows him that like Moses high up on the mountain, that this man has been long and often in communion with the living God. Let's put it this way. A devout man has a profound God consciousness who knows that no matter where he's standing, he's standing on holy ground. Why? Because God. God is there. And so the question is, elders, future elders and everybody else, are you a devout person? Are you a devout person? Which means I'm asking, imperfect though you may be, do you see the authentic signs of genuine saving faith? Which means I'm asking you, is Jesus Christ increasingly beautiful and captivating to your soul? Is your, does your faith consist in something more than just finding Christ to be beneficial? Do you find him beautiful? And my guess is the answer to that question, loaded though it is, is the same as mine. I do love him. I do. But so oftentimes I find that I love him so little. My, my affections for him do not match up with my theological affirmations of him. Is that how you feel? If so, then do I need to remind you that Christ came to this planet to do two earth-shattering things? Number one, Christ came to the planet to pay in full for your failures to treasure him as you ought to treasure him. Number two, Christ came to the planet to purchase with his death, don't miss this, to purchase with his death all the power you need to treasure him in the way he ought to be treasured. And practically how you increase in the treasuring of Christ is by the long, long meditation on the book that you're holding in your hands. There ain't another way. And that brings us to the sixth, Christ-exalting virtue. That an elder and everybody else must pursue with passion. Number six, an elder must be self-controlled. An elder must be self-controlled. Because it is as they say. If it takes 20 minutes to build a reputation, it takes five minutes to destroy it. And whoever they are, they're exactly right because we've seen that, haven't we? And if you think about it, you would never, ever in a million years carry around a live grenade with you everywhere you went. You just wouldn't do that. You'd just stuff it in your pocket and walk around, do the things you got to do with this grenade in your pocket. You would never do that. But you see, the problem is you carry around a human heart and it's your own and it's the one that's in your chest and it's the most dangerous and explosive device of all. And the reason for that is because the human heart easily has within it the potential to destroy not just your life, but also the lives of everyone around you. Tell me I'm wrong. And so what that means is we need spiritual bomb squad training to learn how to not detonate the bomb in our own hearts. And one of the things given to do that is the last qualification on the list in verse 8. Look what Paul says. Paul says that an elder must be hospitable. He's got to love what is good. He's got to be sober-minded. He must be just. He must be devout. And last but not least, an elder has got to be egkrate. He's got to be self-controlled. Self-control. And we don't see much of that nowadays, do we? Certainly not in the culture. Sadly, sometimes not in the church. And with unfortunate regularity. 
sometimes not even in our own lives. And that word self-control, get this, it literally means, if you're gonna be really wooden and literal about it, the word literally means in control of strength. In control of your strength, that is. Or to put it another way, in control over the strength of your heart to do the very things that would destroy you if you did not beat your own heart into submission. That's what the term means. You see, what Paul's got in mind here is a man who's not mastered by his appetites and cravings. He's talking about a man who bosses around his own body and who grabs his own heart by the throat and tells it what to do. This is precisely what Paul was after in 1 Corinthians 6.12 when he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's what Paul's after. And yet, and yet, there are two significant dangers in your thinking that you need to avoid when thinking about self-control. Two two dangers to avoid when thinking about self-control. Danger number one, you must avoid the the, the error of thinking that self-control is a destination at which you arrive rather than a never-ending fight to the death with your own flesh. In other words, what I mean is to be self-controlled is a lifetime, never-ending process, not a single point in time. It is a marathon for life, not a sprint that leads to a standstill. Does that make sense? Because what you have to understand is that the nature of what sin is and the nature of what our hearts are means that we can never be off the clock of self-control. We can't. There are no vacations from being self-controlled. There are no intermissions, no halftime shows, no seventh inning stretch. There's never a time when we can afford to not be being self-controlled. And the reason for that is because the opponent of our own hearts and the opponent of our own desires and the opponent of our own sin is never going to stop trying to get the upper hand and to gain control. It's never going to stop until you are with Christ. Because you remember the old Puritan, what he said, don't you, John Owen? Be killing sin or what? Sin will be killing you. And so to be a self-controlled person means that we are always in the ring, as it were. Spiritual gloves on. Showing no mercy to the opponent of our selfish desires, beating them into submission, kicking them when they're down, hitting them again and again and again every time they lift their head off the the ground and we never let them get off the mat. That is self-control. Or to put it more theologically, to be self-controlled is the moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon Christ through his word to conquer the cravings that wage war against the soul. That is what Paul's after. And that's what elders must be. That's what you must be. But there's a second error that I said you need to avoid when it comes to your thinking about self-control. And this one's the most important of all. Number two, you must avoid the error of thinking that you have the power within yourself to be self-controlled. Because you don't. You don't have that. You see, we must never think that by self-control, the Bible merely means human willpower or clench your fists, grit your teeth determination. You see, self-control is not at all learning how to do the things that you hate and refusing to do the things that you love. It's, It's not mere behavior modification. No, what self-control is, is accessing all the power God supplies through Christ to do the things that God commands. Do you see? That's the new covenant, what Rich was talking about, communion. This is my blood in the new covenant. That's what the new covenant provides. 
God not only tells you what to do, he provides the power through Christ to do what he commands. That is the secret to self-control. And so whether it's self-control with food or lust or our thought lives or spending money or angry words or psychotic attachment to our smartphones, you have to see in Christ, you are not a slave. In Christ, you can be self-controlled. And to be self-controlled, get this, to be self-controlled means not only are we liberated from the clutches of sin's power through Christ, but also that we have been awakened to the superior beauty of Christ that triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. Do you hear that? You need, to, you need to hear that again. To be a self-controlled person means not only have we been liberated from the clutches of sin's power through Christ, but also that we have been awakened to the superior beauty of Christ, which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin. So the question is, elders, future elders and everybody else, how are you doing with self-control? And and the thing is, do you believe that? Do you believe Christ's community? Do you believe that through Christ we have been liberated from the clutches of sin's power? Do you believe that? Do you believe that we have been awakened to the beauty of Christ which triumphs over the suicidal pleasures of sin? See, because here's the thing. Whatever the world tries to tell us about addictions... I really don't like what the world has to say about addictions because it's so rooted in this defeatist kind of mentality. Well, it's an addiction. I guess you can't change. I guess you, I guess you can't be different. That's what the world says. And of course they feel that way because they are slaves to their sin. Just as we ourselves once were. But you see, in Christ, there's nothing that can't be overcome. That brings us to the seventh, final Christ-exalting virtue. Number seven, an elder must wield the weapon of the word. An elder must wield the weapon of the word of God. And just so you know, this sermon, or this, this point technically deserves its own sermon. And I was this close to begin writing a sermon just on this point, but I won't do that, although I should. But I will say, since I have minutes and not hours, I'll give you one paragraph. Okay, maybe two. Look at verse nine. There's the final virtue that elders must pursue with passion. He says that elders must hold fast to the faithful word in accordance with doctrine, with the doctrine. Why? Two reasons. In order that that elder should be able to exhort in sound doctrine and he should refute those or rebuke those who contradict. So it's really clear, isn't it? Whatever it is that elders slash pastors are called to do, their primary occupation is to feed you and to teach you and to love you and to instruct you and to disciple you and to love you with the sacred text of Holy Scripture. He says that elders are to hold fast the faithful word. What does that mean? It means that elders on pain of death hold the line of sound doctrine. Why? Because doctrine is not just important. It means everything for the life of a local church, not just generally specifics in our doctrine. It means everything. It means everything for your personal growth. It means everything for the health of this church. It means everything for the Great Commission. It means everything for the glory of Christ. Why? Why is it so important? Paul gives two reasons. Look what he says. He says, an elder must hold fast the faithful word that he can exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Isn't that interesting? Elders play offense and defense. They exhort in sound doctrine. They refute those who contradict. And what that means is, understand this, everyone, our job as pastors is a profoundly theological work. It is a profoundly word-centered work. 
Elders serve you best and they love you best, not necessarily when they always give you what you want or cater to your preferences, even though we'd really like to do that, but we can't do that because we serve you best when we preach the word and feed the flock and shepherd the sheep and fight the wolves. And when we lead you with the text behind enemy lines against the powers of darkness. That is the calling of an elder and by his grace and by for his glory, that's exactly what we're going to do. So elders, and I close with this. Elders leading the church, it might not look very flashy, and it may not bring in the crowds <laughs> at first, but it is nevertheless one of the means that Christ uses to build his church. And what we love about the way Christ builds his church is that the way he does it guarantees that he alone will get the glory. And we wouldn't have it any other way, would we? Let's pray. Oh Christ, we are so grateful that the building of the church is not in our hands. We are to be agents, responsible, faithful agents to obey what you have commanded us to do. But, O oh Lord, you have positioned this whole thing in such a way that reserves and safeguards your own glory, and for that we're so thankful. I'm so thankful for this church, Lord. And when I look out on this little, tidy congregation, I am grateful because what, what I see, Lord, is profound potential. Not because if any, any one of us are particularly important or, or gifted or special. But Lord, because what I see, oh Lord, what I see is a, is a general hunger and excitement and ambition and a desire to be faithful. And that is what you use. Lord, we don't have to be flashy. We must be faithful. And so I plead with you that we could be a faithful church. And I just pray, I pray that you would do something in our midst. I pray that you would do something in this congregation. And maybe it won't look like Acts, Book of Acts fireworks. Maybe it'll be hidden and unseen, and, but I just pray that you would so work in this church in such a way that we could be an instrument that advances the Great Commission. Change and transform people's lives, O Christ. Do what only you can do, always and only for your glory. And it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.